0: Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the Adult Sunday School class. I see many of you have got an advanced read on what I have passed out. That is for later. But uh, if you looked at the title of it, you will know, first off, I'm not trying to get myself in trouble. Believe it or not, I'm not. But you voted for this. So we are going to teach what was voted for. And what we are talking about today is a little bit of eschatology, specifically optimistic eschatology. Now, when I give that title, optimistic eschatology, do you have, what comes to your mind? What, what is optimistic eschatology? Anyone have a clue?
1: Be here for all
0: the bad stuff. That we won't be here for all the bad stuff.
1: I don't know
0: if <laughs> we'll talk about it.
1: <laughs> good to you.
0: Am I talking post-mill, Dan asks? Well, I didn't use that word. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it. <laughs> Basically... A lot of our eschatological assumptions, so eschatology pertains to the things of the end. Where is this going? A lot of our assumptions about where things are going and how the end is going to look is entirely pessimistic in the sense that everything on earth, if we want to say that this is where we are in morals and spirituality and where things are, like, it, it used to be better, and it's just going down, and we're here, and it's just going to keep getting worse. This world's going to get more wicked and more wicked, and the Christians are going to become fewer and fewer, and then there's going to be tribulations, and there's going to be trials. There's going to be uh, all this bad stuff, havoc, and at some point, God is going to swoop, rapture us up into the, into the sky, and then it's just going to descend and there's going to be chaos on earth for seven years. And then at the end of the seven years, God's going to come back with the Christians and we're going to, this is going to be fire. There, there's fire. We're going to bring fire to the earth. And, and, and that's kind of how we view most of us, how we were taught growing up, that this is the flow of history. It's just gonna keep getting worse, there's gonna be hell on earth, but we're gonna get raptured out of it, and then we're gonna come back and destroy everything. And then we will go into the final state. And then there's a millennium in there, and there's reigning with Christ, and there's other stuff in there too. But we have very pessimistic assumptions that everything is supposed to go very, very bad. And it is my goal to challenge that assumption. I do not believe what I just said. because I'm not saying that my view has to be the um, exact right one and everyone else has to be wrong. But I am trying to be faithful to what how I understand the scripture explains where this is all going. I want to be faithful to what this book says. So I'm going to challenge some of the assumptions that we have grown up with and most of us just assume. That's why they're called assumptions. So... The subtopic, if the overall topic is optimistic eschatology, the subtopic is rapture, end times, disengagement from the world. We've all heard the term rapture before. We all know it. end times, that's the eschatology part. And then the third part, disengagement from the world, because that's what it ultimately ends up doing. A pessimistic eschatology forces you to be more disengaged from the world. That is a primary point that I'm going to be making today. All right, to start with, let's talk about the flow of history. What is God doing? Where has he taken us as a humanity? Obviously, the story starts with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are created, were they created as infants? No, they would have been created grown-up bodies. However, they would have been very... I don't want to use the word infantile, but they, did, they weren't mature. They didn't have life experience yet. That's why it took all of uh, one day about before they fell into sin. I know there's different interpretations, but it didn't take them very long before they fall into sin. They weren't mature. They didn't have much life experience. They were created adults, but they didn't have uh, life experience to be able to teach them how, how to live as much. They had one rule. Don't eat from it. And God said, if you do, you're going to die. Did God kill Adam and Eve that day? Yeah. No, he didn't. They spiritually fell that day. but And it, in, it did introduce death to humanity. But how long did Noah live? 900 some years, the Bible says. He lived a long time. God suspended this, the death sentence until... He naturally died, although something did die that day. Remember, they put fig leaves around themselves. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Yeah, that's not going to cover you. And and then God actually kills an animal and puts animal skins over them. If you read Genesis 3, that's what's going on there. God clothes them, covers them with an animal. Uh, When Cain killed Abel, did God kill Cain? No, he didn't. He put a mark on Cain. (coughs) Nobody's allowed to kill Cain. Now, you're going to get exiled. You're going to go out and you're going to basically be a walking curse. But he didn't let anybody kill Cain. Suspended the sentence. We have to get older, is kind of what I'm saying. Don't think of us just as individuals, but more as covenantal humanity. We started out very immature. Not a lot of experience. And God suspends the sentence of, the, of our wrongdoings. He was suspending it early on because we needed more life experience. We needed to grow up. We were very immature as a humanity. It can be tough to think this way at first. We're not used to this. But um, it's actually not till the time of Noah that God puts in place capital punishment. After the flood, he says that for your blood, I will require a blood, blood guilt. So if you murder somebody else, then it, your life was going to be required. So God puts capital punishment in place in the time of Noah after the flood. So for the sum, if you take the young Earth, for the some 1,600-ish years, there was no capital punishment right there. Like God's allowing humanity to grow up a little bit, and he's got to teach us more things. We're growing more and more when God gives Moses the covenant through the laws, lots of rules. Um, it's kind of like with a growing child. When you have an infant, you don't have many rules on the infant. Uh, that, that, that's kind of nonsensical. You're very basic in what you do. You're hands-on with them. But then they grow up and they start moving around. They're starting to get more experience. So you've got to put those rules in place. Because if you don't, they're going, well, there's danger everywhere if you don't. So by the time we get to Moses, humanity is almost getting into this like toddler phase, if you will. We need all the rules now. Now we're starting to worship God in a more systematized way. There's going to be sacrifices to get us uh, right with God. Although, as Hebrew says, it was impossible to make it fully right with God. But we're growing up, is the point that I'm making. The flow of history is that we have to grow up. Even think about what Israel struggled with in the early days. What were the sins that the nation of Israel struggled with very early on? I'm talking Moses, Aaron... What are the sins that they're struggling with? Yeah, Catherine. Idolatry, Idolatry. yeah. And specifically, they make a golden calf. Like they're making a, a literal image to worship. And that's what they struggle with. What are they struggling with a couple hundred years later? You get into the time of the kings. David, Solomon, <clears throat> Jeroboam. What are they struggling with then? What are they doing? Yeah still idolatry for no, sure adultery. oh adultery definitely adultery uh, yeah I mean yeah you're right and they're struggling with syncretism a lot they're, they're going to the bales. they're going to the high places the Asherah poles they're going to dif- it's a little bit different than the time of Moses and Aaron but then you get to the first century you have Pharisees you have Sadducees is Israel are the Jews bowing to golden calves then anymore are they syncretizing with the bales with Asherah poles? Are they going to high places? Are they doing that anymore? No, they're not. They're more struggling. Well, the Sadducees denied resurrection, so they're kind of like the liberals, if you will, just denying what, what, this, what the words say. And the Pharisees are like your strict fundamentalists who are going way too far with everything. They're struggling more with applying the details. It's not as outward idolatry anymore. The point that I'm getting at is the flow of history shows that God's people mature over time. We mature in our understandings. We're not struggling with the same stuff that we used to. The category, yes, idolatry. Do we still struggle with idolatry? Of course we do. But how it looks, how we end up um, becoming idolatrous will look different because we learn more over time. We understand this book a little bit more over time. So let's talk. Uh, Christ comes at the right time he came. Um, I would say at the time when covenantally we are grown at the right time. Christ comes and he institutes the new covenant. And that's a covenant that shows us a revelation that we are not covenantally children anymore. Do we have Hundreds and hundreds of rules like the Mosaic law that we have to follow today. No, we don't. The laws are actually incredibly relaxed. It talks more about conscience and not letting your brother stumble through. But if, but if their conscience says that this is sin, it is sin for them. Obviously, we still believe in holiness. We still believe in sanctification. But we don't have to follow the hundred steps anymore. You ever read Leviticus 1? Actually, we're going to read it in our scripture reading uh, in the evening service. You read Leviticus 1 about what uh, the priest has to do with the animal. You have to cut off its legs, and its legs have to go onto the altar, but the, but the kidneys and, or the dung has to be outside of it, and then you've got to take the head, and you, you've got to do like five, four, a bunch of different steps just in killing one animal, the sacrifice. You get to the new covenant, it's not like that anymore. Things are more relaxed, fewer uh, strict rules, there's more freedom given to us. We don't have to, we don't have the temple and the sacrifices because the temple's in our hearts, the Holy Spirit's in our hearts. We don't worship from afar anymore where the priest is doing all this stuff and we're kind of just standing there. Now we get to ha- the priesthood of all believers, we get to be involved in the worship directly. We get to ask God for forgiveness ourselves. It's It's maturation. We have the constant presence of the Spirit. Did they have that in the Old Testament? No. God would send the Holy Spirit upon those he would empower. And then we learn that he could take his Spirit away. That happened to Saul. So the way that the Spirit was with covenant humanity was different in the Old Covenant to now. We are now in this so-called church age. We are continuing to mature into adulthood. Again, don't think just individually. Think as a covenant humanity. As the people of God, we are continuing to mature. Here are some evidences of it. The doctrine of the Trinity. You know how long it took for the doctrine of the Trinity to be ironed out and confessed out. It took till the 300s. And they were still talking about it into the 400s. Christology. Uh, Arianism was so big for a time. There was a time when Christ was not. As in, he was created. He wasn't God beforehand. It took 300 years to deal with that. The doctrine of justification by faith. Penal substitutionary atonement. It took to Luther and the Reformation for us to really hammer that one out. 1500s. Covenantal theology. Obviously, there were always ta- covenant is all over the Bible, so... Other guys were talking about covenant. I was reading uh, both Irenaeus and Tertullian this past week, and both of them mentioned covenant, but they don't go into much detail. We don't see how covenant is the framework by which God speaks to us, and we don't get it fleshed out till the 1600s. By our own doctrinal understandings, biblical understandings, we mature over time. We grow over time. Should we expect that to continue? Here's a key question. In 300 years, will the theologians of that day be more precise than we are today? Follow up. Is this the first time you've thought about the future, 300 years, as though we're actually still going to be here in 300 years? Because most of us assume we are the last generation, and any minute now, God's going to rapture us out and bring seven years of hell on earth. That's usually our assumption. We don't think, what are my great-great-grandchildren, what's the world going to be like when they're here? 300 years from now, will we have slightly better theology and understandings? Because that's been the history of the whole church. We are covenantally growing into maturity. It's also evidenced by the fact that our estranged family comes back together. Jesus, when he comes, institutes the new covenant. He's bringing in the nations, the world. Remember John 3? Who was he coming for? He was coming also for the world. Not to condemn the world, but to save it. He's coming to save the world. But again, we just have our eschatological assumptions get in front of that. No, he's coming to obliterate them in a seven-year tribulation. What I'm saying is, this is messing with the flow of where God is taking us if we just put those assumptions ahead of what, with the totality of biblical evidence. Jesus gives some parables about his kingdom. He calls it a mustard seed. Remember that one? It's going to start small and it's going to continuously grow until it is the largest plant in the garden. And it talks about like birds nestling in there and all of that. Jesus himself says his kingdom is supposed to keep growing and growing and growing. But our assumption says, no, it's going to keep shrinking, 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 shrinking until we get raptured out. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a little bit of leaven in dough. And that leaven's going to expand, 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 expand until it's huge. We put our assumptions in front of that. Nope, it's actually going to keep on getting smaller until we get obliterated. Or at least till the world gets obliterated. Let's talk about the world for a minute. In Genesis chapter 10, you have, uh, most of your Bibles will probably have the heading, Nations Descended from Noah. The very first verse of chapter 10, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Traditional Judaism, so the rabbis, traditional uh, Judaism, this chapter, gives us Israel and the nations. And if you count up the sons and all that that are listed here, uh, they say that there are 70 nations that come out of this. So they didn't start as full-fledged nations, let alone empires. They just started as little tribes who grow. But in their understanding, in Judaic understanding, you have Israel and then the 70 nations. So when you get to Jesus' day, where it's all about Israel and the world it's kind of this is kind of where it's coming from it's Israel and the 70 nations and there's an interesting statement in uh, Deuteronomy 32 I have several verses that we're going to look at today but in Deuteronomy 32 verse 8 it says when the most high gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God so Deuteronomy 32.8 is confirming that idea where that the Jews got where back in Genesis 10 God divided humanity Israel and the 70 nations now some will say there's 72 nations you can do some things with the numbers but the point is the same and then, in Exodus chapter 1, we get that idea of 70 brought up again. Uh, Exodus 1, 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. That idea of the complete hood of the people. Israel and the 70 is how the Jews ended up understanding all of this type of stuff. So Israel and the 70. And then we have the prophet Isaiah, who's going to talk about, in Isaiah 49, he's going to say that Israel is the, maybe you remember, Israel is the what of the nations? Firstborn. Firstborns, good try. Oh, it's The light. Israel is the light of the nations. What he says in Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Okay, so Israel... And Paul confirms this. Israel was the vehicle by which God's promises were working. The light was going to spread to all the nations so that salvation could reach every corner of the globe. Okay. This makes a lot more sense then when we read John chapter 1. Jesus comes onto the scene. He knows that Israel is the light of the nations. And in the first century... Israel doesn't get along with the world. God only saves those who are circumcised, according to their understanding. And so everybody else is basically condemned. But in the the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone. Not just Israel. Israel and the 70. The nations. Everyone else. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people. They didn't get, uh, they didn't take him. Who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God. Okay, so Israel was the light of the nations, but then he comes, Jesus is the light of the nations. He is true Israel. He is the supreme Israelite, the supreme Hebrew. And then that makes more sense of John chapter 3, 16. God loves the 70 nations. He loves the world. He's coming to save them too. Now, if they reject him, they will be condemned. But he loves them. He is their light. Ephesians chapter 2 is going to teach about how we come together with the Gentiles. Or we are the Gentiles. How the Jews came together with us. If I had more time, we'd read the whole chapter. But um, verse 11, Remember, at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, the 70 nations, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, One new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Another one of our assumptions that we put on to the scriptures is that God has a special plan and a special timeline and a special way of doing things with ethnic Jews And a very different thing that he's got going on with believing Gentiles, the believers. I really think Ephesians 2 is a big challenge to that understanding. Jesus is the light of the nations, not the ethnic Jews. Jesus is true Israel. Paul is going to end up calling us in Romans, who is the true Jew? The one who believes by faith. There's not two separate destinies, two separate things that God's trying to do. He's working through his corporate people who is now both Jew and Gentile together. So we're sitting around waiting because Israel is a nation again, ethnic Israel. I mean, they they, got to rebuild the temple They got to reinstitute the sacrifices so that the Antichrist can come and put up his image in the in the temple, and then we can get raptured out, and then we can come back and obliterate. But some of the Jews have to be saved in that time. It's not what I'm saying to you. Is that betrays the flow of history of the Bible? Where we go theologically, God's plan with the ethnic Jews continues. In his faithful covenant people, all of us. There's no hostility. There's no divide anymore, and we know that as well. James says, "Show no partiality." There's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile anymore. Was it of benefit to be a Jew? Oh, as Paul says, by every mean, by every means, it was beneficial to be a Jew in the first century, because you had the you had the revelation, you had the promises, you had the covenant. But in Christ, the covenant expands. The flow of history is going with God's people together, not separate entities and separate destinies. So I know this isn't everyone's cup of tea for me to say this, but the fact that Israel is an ethnic nation again means nothing biblically. Waiting around for sacrifices to be instituted again I would, We can't get into all of it, but I would challenge that that betrays the flow of history. We're not going backwards. We're growing up. We're maturing. And God doesn't have separate destinies for all of us. In 1 John 2, 2, you don't have to turn there, but John is going to write, He, that is Christ, is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We really struggle with these verses that talk about the whole world because it sounds universalist. What? God is just going to save absolutely everybody? There's no hell anymore? There's no sin? There's no judgment? Oh no, there is. There absolutely is. But we got to think more covenantally, not individualistically. He's coming to save people from every tribe, tongue, nation. He's coming for them all. And over time, if his kingdom is going to expand, like he said in his own parables, teaching about his kingdom, then we should expect more and more and more of the Jew and Gentiles to be coming together and be saved over time. Not that there isn't hell, judgment, wrath. Oh, there absolutely is. But if we believe what Jesus says about his kingdom, we are going to have more and more people see the light so that his salvation goes to the ends of the earth. Not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. For true Israel. Remember, Jesus said... uh, who could he make sons of Abraham out of? He's pointing to some rocks. I can make sons of Abraham out of these rocks. As in, your ethnicity, it's not, it's not the prime factor anymore. Things changed with Christ. And then we learn that Jesus is the present ruler. He is king. That's what Christ the term the title Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title, his royal authority, that he is the Messiah, He is the ruler that they were all waiting for. He is presently in charge. We get that straight out of Matthew 28. Behold, all authority is given to me. It's not all authority 5,000 years from now, 2,000 years from now, 100,000 years after the millennium. No, all authority is given to him right now. Christ is sitting, reigning, and ruling. So we can give a little bit too much credit to Satan sometimes because he is called the the prince of the powers of the air. um, Other statements like that. Other times it says he is the god of this world which was covenantally true for the 70 nations, which is represented in them. And then one of the biggest proof texts of what I'm talking about is 1 Corinthians 15. This is worth turning to. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is definitively talking about Christ's present rulership and how things are going to go leading up to the end. So, we're not going to some obscure passages. This is directly about where this is going. Starting in verse 20. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all die so all in Christ so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order Christ the first fruits then at his coming those who belong to Christ then comes the end all right let's pay attention here then comes the end when he delivers Christ delivers the kingdom of god Uh, The kingdom to God, the Father. So, the end is going to come. When it comes, Christ is going to give the kingdom to the Father. That's how we know the end is coming. After destroying every rule and every authority and power. Okay, when is Christ going to give the kingdom to the Father so that the end comes? After he's ruling over everything. He's destroyed every enemy. There's no enemy left. Is when he's going to pass it over. 25. For he must reign. It's not... He's going to reign. He's currently reigning. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Christ is currently reigning, has all authority, is going to destroy his enemies progressively over time. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Again, so Christ is going to come after he's already ruling over everything. He's destroyed his enemies. Then the end comes. We often assume... That we need to wait for everything to get worse and worse and worse. There's very few Christians. Then Jesus is going to rapture us out, and then he's going to do all the, the plagues on earth for seven years, and then we're going to come back. And then, so Jesus is going to deal with the enemies at that time. He's going to institute the millennium. And if you follow the ideas there, Christ is supposed to be physically, literally reigning then on earth for a thousand years. The saints are then been glorified we have, have new bodies at that point we reign with Christ but the wicked are still on earth because there's supposed to be a final rebellion a final turning at the end which is interesting because Christ is then reigning on earth He's got, we got the glorified bodies but there's still wicked people on earth and there's still death all the time there would still be procreation and death but this says the last enemy to be defeated is death when he comes that breaks the order see he has to defeat all the enemies first then he delivers the kingdom, and the end comes. We're not going down, 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 everything getting worse, worse, worse. Oh, look out, Russia, they're, they're doing stuff, they're Gog and Magog, and, and the Middle East, the Antichrist could come out of the, the, the Middle East or the European Union. I know that's what we were raised on, I was raised on it. I'm just challenging that assumption because it breaks the flow of history. God is maturing his people. He's coming to destroy his enemies. He's spreading his salvation, his light, all over the earth. Will Christ be successful in his mission? He's been successful in every mission he's ever undertaken. He's not going to fail through the church. It's going to take some time. It's taken 2,000 years, and yeah, there's wickedness all around us. It's going to take time. But Christ is not going to fail. He's coming for a victorious earth. Uh, And then Revelation 19 and 20. And then we can talk more specifically about rapture, uh, pre-tribulationism, and all that. In Revelation 19 and 20, there's a lot of disagreement amongst theologians about when this is. Um, The rider on the white horse, verse 11 I'm going to kind of paraphrase this. I'm not going to read every word just to save time. Heaven opens, a white horse. The one sitting on it is faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are fire. Uh, he's got a name written that no one knows. He's clothed in blood. He's called the Word of God. Who is this? Oh, Jesus Christ. The Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. They're also on white horses. They're with them. From his mouth comes a... Sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Didn't we just see a verse about him reigning and ruling over nations and how he has to strike down his enemies? But what is this sword that he has? Is this a literal sword where the church is supposed to pick up guns and swords and start saying convert or die? course not. Ephesians 6 tells us what this sword is. You've certainly heard of the armor of God that we have to put on. And in Ephesians chapter 6 he's going to tell us to take up the whole armor, verse 13 of Ephesians 6, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all, to stand firm, belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes for your feet, um, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which with, with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What is the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth? The word of God. It's not a literal sword. It's not a literal weapon. It's the word of God, which is supposed to expand, when uh, as it's talking about here in Revelation 19, And with the word of God, he is going to strike down the nations, strike down the wicked, and rule. And he has to do this on this earth. 1 Corinthians 15. He's got to do it here before the end comes. Finally, Revelation 20. There's the thousand years, uh, which we call the millennium. And then I want to focus on the verse 11, judgment before the great white throne. John sees a great white throne and him who is seated on it from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We are moving towards a final judgment. There will be a final judgment. But Christ is reigning now. By the word of God, through his church, to go to all the nations that they may be put under the word of God and reign in righteousness, he will deliver the kingdom to the Father when the kingdom is expanded sufficiently for him. We don't know the daytime hour. But at a sufficient time, the Lord will come back and he will resurrect everybody, all of the dead, and it's time to get judged then. And you see in Revelation 20, who's being judged here? Because some people believe that only the wicked are being judged here. Because the the righteous have to be raptured out seven years before this. The righteous have a different judgment. And this is then just the judgment for the wicked. But is that what it says? It seems to say both the great and the small. There seems to be multiple books. The book of life. uh, In the sea. In death. In Hades. Everyone who is dead is being judged raised up at the same time there's not a separate raising a secret time where the church comes out and a different time when the wicked get taken out it's the same time same judgment right then and there together otherwise there's no reason to to talk like this And so we get to rapture theory. We get to pre-tribulationism. Seven years. Separate judgments. Christ ruling on earth with glorified saints. But the wicked are still living here and dying during that time. This is where we can now turn to the little article that I gave you by Brian Shortley. This entire article can be found online for free. I only printed the first page or two. Is the pre-tribulation rapture biblical. Let's just go down to the origin of rapture teaching. I'm almost done. Then we can get to some discussion because I know there's probably lots of thoughts going on. Whenever a Christian encounters a doctrine that has not been taught by anyone in any branch of Christ's church for over 18 centuries, one should be very suspect of that teaching. This fact in and of itself does not prove that the new teaching is false. But it should definitely raise one's suspicions, for if something is taught in Scripture, it is not unreasonable to expect at least a few theologians and exegetes to have discovered it before. The teaching of a secret pre-tribulation rapture is a doctrine that never existed before 1830. Did the pre-tribulation rapture come into existence by a careful exegesis of scripture? He says no. The first person to teach the doctrine was a young woman named Margaret MacDonald. Margaret was not a theologian or Bible expositor, but was a prophetess in the Irvingite sect, the Catholic Apostolic Church. Christian journalist Dave McPherson has written a book on the subject of the origin of the pre-tribulation rapture. He writes, We have seen that a young Scottish lassie named Margaret MacDonald had a private revelation in Port Glasgow, Scotland in the early part of 1830 that select group of Christians would be caught up to meet Christ in the air before the days of Antichrist. An eye and ear witness, Robert Norton, M.D., preserved her handwritten account of her pre-trib rapture revelation in two of his books and said it was the first time anyone ever split the second coming into two distinct parts or stages. His writings, along with other Catholic apostolic church literature, have been hidden many decades from the mainstream of evangelical thought and only recently surfaced. Margaret's views were well known to those who visited her home. Among them... John Darby of the Brethren. Most of us assume John Darby was the first one. He actually wasn't. Within a few months, her distinctive prophetic outlook was mirrored in the September 1830 issue of The Morning Watch and the early Brethren Assembly at Plymouth, England. Early disciples of the pre-trib interpretation often called it a new doctrine. J. N. Darby who was the leader of the Brethren movement and the father of modern dispensationalism, took Margaret MacDonald's new teaching on the rapture, excuse me, new teaching on the rapture, made some changes. She taught a partial rapture of believers while he taught all believers will be raptured and incorporated it into his dispensational understanding of scripture and prophecy, prophecy. Darby would spend the rest of his life speaking, writing, and traveling, spreading the new rapture theory. The Plymouth Brethren openly admitted and were even proud of the fact that among their teachings were totally new ones which had never been taught by the church fathers, medieval scholastics, Protestant reformers, or the many commentators. The person most responsible for the rather widespread acceptance of pre-tribulationism and dispensationalism among evangelicals is C.I. Schofield. C.I. Schofield published his Schofield Reference Bible in 1909. This Bible, which espoused the doctrines of Darby and its notes, became very popular in fundamentalist circles. In the minds of many a Bible teacher, fundamentalist pastor, and multitudes of professing Christians, Schofield's notes were practically equated with the word of God itself. If a person did not adhere to the dispensational, pre-tribulational scheme, he or she would almost automatically be labeled a modernist. And then the article goes on from there. You can find it for free online. That's the origins of it. Now, he himself says, just because something wasn't emphasized much early doesn't mean it's automatically wrong. But it does mean that we should give it a second thought. It is, it is a point to reckon with. <clears throat> Some major issues with that understanding, not just the origins of it, other issues include many of the judgments uh, of the the judgments that were going to happen was going to happen after the church gets raptured out. There's going to be separate resurrections. It's a pretty big issue. I'm gonna. You don't have to turn to these verses. You can mark them if you want. Matthew 25, 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Same judgment, same resurrection. He's going to split them. There's no splitting them if you're doing this at different times. There's nothing to split. It's at the same time. Matthew 13:30 Let both the righteous and the wicked grow together until the harvest and at the time of harvest I will say to the reapers first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them but gather the wheat into my barn Again both together wheat and tares here he actually says first gather the tares first get the wicked and then and then the righteous and split them up Are we supposed to get raptured out 7 years early? doesn't seem to be two different resurrections. John five twenty eight twenty nine. 29 Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Same time, same judgment. That was John 5, 28-29. One more. John 6, 39-40. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Not seven years before. Not a thousand years before after the millennium. The last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. My issue with disp- dispensational pre-tribulationism is that it doesn't take into account the flow of history. That we're supposed to grow up into maturity. The kingdom is supposed to expand. We're supposed to have people grow in salvation all around the world. Not get worse, 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 worse. And then finally, I think a lot of those things, the the judgments that it talks about of all the wickedness spreading, uh, I can't get into this today, but it's referring to a lot of first century events. Um, Not necessarily what's happening now with Russia going into Ukraine and NATO and European Union. It's not what it's talking about. So have optimism. There's tremendous hope that we get to live in. God has set us on course to win the world. Not to shrink and disengage from it. He has authority. He's going to accomplish his promise that the nations will come. The whole world will come. Not every single individual will be saved. We know that. But the kingdom grows Think generationally. Your great-grandchildren will still be on this mission. Your great-great-great-great-grandchildren will still be on this mission. We can't be escapists in our thinking. Be involved here. All right. Comments. We have a few minutes. Any comments, questions, concerns, anything you're thinking about? Otherwise, I can go further. Tony? I
2: found over the time... We lack knowledge in history and sometimes we have a no desire to research history. Uh, we have six thousand years of history that we can research. And if you look at it over and over again, this generation right now has had it incredibly calm. If you compare World War II, World War One, throughout the thousand year dark ages, if you look at what Israel went through with the Romans and you backtrack that into the Old Testament we have it very good right now so for people to say um, that I'm looking for the rapture right now because it's evil I would say our forefathers had it a thousand times worse than us and we have to realize um, studying history is important if you don't study history you're not going to understand where we're at compared to
0: where we <clears throat> that's right, we have matured and grown through church history, yes Hello. hi Roxanne, <laughs> that's fine um,
1: yeah, I've given up more tracks in the last couple of years I have like my whole Christian life like 20 years and I find it's because it's so easy to engage right now um, you just talk to someone hey, did you hear about that cricket factory you open up, open up in London mm. oh yeah, did you know it's in the Bible first Timothy four three and time is really easy. No, really? Um, Revelation 13. uh, Mastercard, about a month ago, they said you can change your hand or head now. And, you know, you just engage with people. Hey, do you know Revelation 13? Um, And time you have the mark on your hand and your forehead. So I I just find people that don't know the Bible at all, if I just put in a couple of verses, they're like, No, that that's written in the Bible. Mm -hmm. So I find it really fun to talk right now to people. Whereas I never... Used to engage in times yeah. ever. Um, they're just fascinated. Like, relative to one world um, government, one world religion, that building is opening up this year. It's going to be uh, uh, Christianity, Jewish, Islam. I'll put the other one. Um, anyway, oh, this is cool too. Um, Matthew, Matthew 24, that he would shorten the days, and the globe is actually moving faster, and they don't know why. That was in some report. I just find that wow, does you literally mean our days will be short mm-hmm. So that's just my two cents. We're just I find it fascinating and fun. I love digging into this stuff. And, oh yeah. And yeah, what what are these verses? What do they mean? Um, but uh, the most comforting thing, and I think that's why your whole motive is to comfort us in this, is Isaiah three ten in the latter times. Tell the righteous it will be well with them. It, hey, there you yeah, go. Yeah, so like mm-hmm. you said, it's not like. Oh, for us? boom! we're going right down. No, I, I totally agree with
0: you. That, yeah. No, don't, going to that. Tell the righteous, it will be well. Yeah. Because yeah. these things are very scary to look at, right? hmm But it will be okay. Now, we have to leave room for suffering. Ecclesiastes is still in the Bible. Job is still in the Bible. Suffering, tribulations that we go through, we got to leave room for suffering. We can't be yuppie triumphalistic and like ignore that there's pain and suffering. No, there is we go forward cuz god will do the converting we can't pretend that things are great when they're not so we have got to leave room for suffering but still the lord will succeed in his mission our our view on i'm sure there's many different views in here right now but they yeah. all your view on this whether you, whether you think so or not completely dictates your life your lifestyle your life choices do i invest for my grandkids Oh, oh man! I'm uh, ten years. That's all we got left. Let's spend it all now. What, what's the point of buying a house? What's the your whole your your view on this dictates so many. The way you live your life, everything you I think agree. is the world going to end this way? Is it going to end this way? It you gotta be you gotta be really careful about this, right? And 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 I know when we say think logically, obviously we don't think like God, but there's there's basic things, right? You know, if you. I can't imagine just rebuilding a temple and start re-sacrificing animals. Like, how insulting to Christ would that be? Like, it doesn't even make logical sense, people. Hmm. And uh, and first of all, I don't know how many animal activist groups would allow that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to happen. I know. They got the blueprints. We think, probably the sand somewhere. But come on, man. It's like, we got to be careful. Very good comment. I completely agree. Is it quick? It's 1019. Yep. Is really 10 yeah, it's actually 1019. Really quick? No? Really okay. Quick, really quick.
2: Oh, okay, really quick. Uh, for those that are praying for Israel and all that, just think of one thing or two things. Are you praying for Christ to save them or are you praying for a temple and animal sacrifice to save them? And that will determine your, your thought and how you pray. Because remember, they don't need a temple of animals. They need to blood.
0: Amen. To to Amen. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Ryan. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are our God, you are our king, you are our ruler, and you are good. You are so good. And even as we were encouraged by, it will be well with your people. We can't wait for that day when we get to be with you in glory for all eternity. Fill us with that hope. Fill us with confidence in your rule and reign, Lord. And now let us worship you with thankfulness and gladness in our hearts that we may be pure worshipers of spirit and truth.